listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 304. So, audiences, a little apology. We skipped an episode or two. For the first time, I think, ever, you and I both got sick at the same time. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's literally nobody could do this show. So, you know, we understand that you want us to have shows out every week. We've done a really good job of committing and doing that lately. And Paige and I just both got sick and we had to take a little time off. I sounded like a legit dude. Yeah, I've healed a little bit quicker than you have, so you're still suffering. Yeah. But you're a trooper. You're on the microphone, even though you don't feel I good. I am. Hey, Paige. Yes. We have to be better by June 28th. You want to know why? Because we're probably going somewhere, I assume. Yeah. All of our brothers and sisters and listeners in Calgary, we heard you. We've heard you for years. So we're taking our world-famous oil and gas industry mixer. From Houston, Texas to Calgary on June 28th, this mixer is going to be sponsored by Emerson. Big shout out to that whole team over there for helping us make this happen. We don't have tickets for sale yet, but they will be for sale pretty soon. So if you want to come join our industry mixer in Calgary on Wednesday, June 28th, follow us on social. And this is why I tell you peeps to join our LinkedIn page so you know about stuff like this. But this could be a blast. This would be a good time to be in Calgary. We have a whole bunch of listeners. In, I should in probably check my passport. In Alberta. Yeah, you should probably check your passport. <laughs> I know it's been a hot minute. It hasn't been seven yeah. years. but And unlike most of our industry mixers, we're going to actually do an episode of this podcast, Oil & Gas This Week, from our industry mixer in Calgary. Oh, are we? Yeah. So it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a fun. The charity that we're donating money to helps retired police dogs. Oh, yay. Yeah. So come join us. Stay tuned for the details. But if you're within 300 miles of, of Calgary, you need to put this on your calendar. You need to come join us. Yeah. We got a review. You want to read it? Actually, it's a LinkedIn message, and I got the same one. It's from G. Hampton Coakley, head of operations at SAS. Mark, absolutely love the Oil and Gas This Week podcast. Wanted to connect since we are both in the industry. Hope to see you at a conference or a partner via advertising in the future. G. Hampton Coakley, that was smart to send the same message to Paige. Now, that way, it doubled your chances of getting on the show. And once again, we love that you listen to the show. We love all of our listeners. Our listeners have been listening to this show for years. Our new listeners, you're all part of the family. So thanks for the thumbs up. You're welcome. <laughs> I used to be a listener. You couldn't be here without me, Mark. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the audience probably doesn't know that story. Is that originally you started out as a listener to this show? Yeah, yeah. Long commute from the Woodlands to downtown for seven years. So I had to have something to do. Karaoke just wasn't cutting it. No, don't get me wrong. My eyes were on the road. I just knew all the words, that sort of thing. But anyway, yeah, I ended up looking you guys up. And, and look what happened. Ta-da. So for our gazillions of listeners in every single country on the planet, and if you don't know this, this show literally has listeners in every single country on the planet, which is incredible. See what happens when you listen to the show? Great stuff happens to you. All right. Well, let's get into the news stories. First up is Chevron to buy PDC Energy and $7.6 billion deal. 
Yeah, so this is going to boost Chevron's DJ Basin output by over 260 barrels per day. Chevron shares fell less than 1%. On the announcement, PDC Energies gained 9%, which is what you would expect it to do. This would be a stock and debt transition worth over $7 billion. That's with a B, billion dollars. And this can help Chevron increase its production, capital expenditures, and also cash flow in the U.S. with everything that's going on in the world geopolitically in the oil and gas industry. But what this is really about is acreage. In this article, they don't talk a whole bunch about this, is there's a lot of acreage that's still available in the DJ Basin. And this deal is something that's actually really rare, where Chevron is buying intentionally overlapping acreage. This way that Chevron will have the ability to do whatever well spacing works best now and in the future. And it gives them a footprint to compete with companies such as ExxonMobil in the Permian. So I think this is great. You know, recently a bunch of analysts have been questioning whether Chevron has the ability to keep its shell properties production level because they've been in decline. So what does Chevron do? Buys it all. Just buy more properties, right? So good job for Chevron. This is actually great for PDC Energy. There's going to be a very minimum amount of layoffs that go on because of this in a time when the industry can't hire enough people. So good job for Chevron. Good job for PDC. Good job, everybody. Goodbye. Good job. And good job for the world. We need more hydrocarbons in the market. And Chevron's going to help us get there. Good deal. Good deal. Lawmakers seek clarification on plan USA pipe safety rule. Yeah. So let me kind of break this down. So you have a couple of organizations that are involved here. The PHMSA is the group that I'm most concerned about here. That's the Pipeline Hazard Material Safety Administration. DOT, Department of Transportation, is also involved with this. But for all of a sudden, now remember, PHMSA is basically the organization that's tasked with making sure that pipelines are safe and there's nothing, and they're not oh, so hazardous. They're, they're regulator. Right? They're regulator, right? Well, as part of this new deal, PHMSA is estimating environmental cost. PHMSA is estimating the social cost of carbon, the social cost of methane, to define the new increases in regulations. And they're using a term called equity benefits, uh, mm. which basically means they're tying a dollar to things such as the social cost of carbon, the social cost of methane. Figures. First thing, PHMSA, this is outside of your jurisdiction. You should not be using social causes and unproven hypotheses to help push a political agenda when what this really is, even though it's pushed out as a pipeline safety rule, it's really a political agenda approach, which is just wrong. Now, these extra rules and regulations around leaks and hazard preventions sounds like a good idea, right? You want less leaks. You want less hazards. But – What happens when you want to take something from happening from 1% of the time to 0.8% of the time, but it triples the cost of implementation? Uh, Now, you want to know who pays for that triple the cost? Well, yeah, us. Us, the consumer. So this is another way, another approach where a government agency is using its legal reach to talk about social issues and scientific hypotheses. And the end result is to add additional cost to energy, in this case, natural gas and crude oil, which should be dirt cheap by artificially adding costs that you and I and the consumers will have to pay for ourselves. You're now making hydrocarbons artificially more expensive and they need to be. Now, as usual, part of the U.S. government thinks this is the best idea ever, and the other part of the U.S. government thinks this is a horrible idea. Mayor Pete just needs to go back on paternity leave. Yep. 
And so the House committee is looking at this proposal and trying to figure out if the costs equaled the benefits, and they haven't decided that, right? So there's a whole bunch of congressional mandates and open rulemakings that have not been finalized. This is one of them. Let's hope this doesn't go through. I am all for 100% making pipelines safer, making them less likely to leak, less likely have impact to the environment. I'm all for paying for that. But I'm not all for paying more for my energy because somebody has a social cost of carbon that's pushed into a pipeline safety and hazard ruling. That's just wrong. Of course it is. But you, like you said, it's an agenda. So, All right. So next up, Canada Energy Regulator Monitoring Wildfire Impact. You know what's crazy, Paige? What? You can actually go online in several places and you can actually see the satellite images of the smoke from these wildfires. Oh, I bet. It is unreal what's going on now. All of the operators in this part of the world understand wildfires. By the way, people, wildfires are natural. <laughs> They're part of the natural recycling. There's actually a lot of trees that actually can't reproduce without wildfires. Not that I'm saying that this wildfire is good. I just want to let everybody know that wildfires are part of the natural process. But all the companies that operate in this part of Canada, basically mainly Alberta, they had over 80 active wildfires going on. Some of those have been controlled. Some of those have been put out. Some have actually grown. And then some of them, they're actually letting their control and they're let them burn themselves out. The operators in the area know what to do. The pipelines, they are designed to be shut down on very short notice and basically be emptied and filled with an inert gas. So there's no way to help fuel that fire. So all the operators are cooperating. The federal government is actually working with indigenous communities, the operators, the provincial officials to stay on top of this. TC Energy, Synovus, Crescent Point, Vermilion, Canadian Natural Resources, Pimba Pipeline, all have evacuated several of their operational areas to get their people out of harm's way. So, so far, it looks like this is going to be one of those wildfire seasons that doesn't damage a whole bunch of infrastructure. There have been some homes that have lost, and there have been a couple of compression plants that they haven't been able to check on because of the wildfires to see if they're damaged. They've lost communications with those. So we're going to see where this goes. There's a lot of uncertainty going on right now. But as far as everybody is aware, as from an oil and gas operator point of view, there's been very little loss of infrastructure, and they're just waiting for things to calm down so they can reevaluate everything and get production back up. As far as I know, on the oil and gas operator side, there's been no lives lost. There's been a couple of injuries. That was my next question. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about bringing our industry mixer to Alberta. The wildfires hopefully will be out by the time we get there in June. Okay. Church of England to vote against Shell chair on climate issues. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Church of England's pension fund is going to vote against Andrew McKenzie, who's the Shell chairman, and the rest of the board with their new direction under their new CEO, Wayne Solon. So this is a move that's part of a kind of a bigger effort among European institutional shareholders to keep up pressure on the oil and gas operators, especially the super majors, to cut greenhouse gas emissions. What they don't understand is that if you try to force the super majors to meet, once again, certain social and hypothesis science, hypothetical science, number one, it hurts their business and causes them to do things like Shell moving headquarters, right? Right. Number two, you're in charge of the pension fund, which means Church of England people. You're responsible for the people that work for the Church of England and have retired and depend on the pension fund to pay for their way of life, their bills, cost of living, housing, food, all that Isn't stuff. Isn't King Charles the head of the church? Oh, that's another subject in itself. I think in a figurehead point of view, he okay. is. 
So basically what you're doing is you're forcing the companies that make money for your pension holders to do stuff to cause them to lose money. When you do that, then your pension decreases in value and you have less money for your pension holders. So number one, you're not doing due diligence to your pension holders. Number two, you're caving into political pressure to do something that's not good for anybody. Look at what happened in the UK. Look at BP and Shell. In the very beginning, they dumped a lot of money in renewables. And once again, I love renewables. They have their place. They lost market share. They lost revenue. They lost cash flow compared to Exxon and Shell, who didn't do that sort of thing. And so the pension funds that hold Exxon and Chevron right now are doing really well. Shell and BP both have said publicly that the earlier attempts to dump a lot of money into renewables was not a good business decision, and they've changed that. They're still investing in renewables, people, but they're doing it in a slower, more thoughtful strategy while they reinvest that money in their hydrocarbon business, which is better for their company. And if you're a shareholder like Church of England, you want the shares of these companies to do really well. So by voting against the climate issues with Shell, you're hurting your own pension holders, which is just ridiculous. I don't know how the panel for the Church of England pension fund is put together, but if they're voted in those positions, they need to be voted out of the positions. They're not doing the best job. This is sort of like hiring a finance manager, and he does the worst job of managing your money instead of the best job. Why would you keep him around? This is utterly ridiculous. All righty. Oil majors are preparing for a difficult period. So you see all the record profits everybody's making. You see the cost of crude is up. We're still in this global energy shortage. And you go, there's no way there's a difficult period coming. There actually kind of is. So as we ease out of the world's energy shortage, as the supply of hydrocarbons start to get close to equaling demand, no matter what happens in Russia and Ukraine, the Middle East and everywhere else, because remember, the market always has a bigger impact to pricing than anything else. As we get close to pulling out of this, and remember, I predicted this almost two years ago, yeah. that it would go on for about two years. Yeah. As we get closer, the price of oil will drop. Now, if you look at what's going on in the world, interest rates have gone up in all major Western countries. Right. right. So the cost of using capital has went up. At the same time, we're headed toward a cycle of lower oil and gas prices. So the combination of higher interest costs, higher operating costs, we can't hire people. We still can't get all the parts and pieces. So our operating costs have went up. And then a future drop in both oil and gas prices tells most people, myself included, and this article explains it very well, that the fantastic times are over and we're going to head into the normal times of the oil and gas industry. Now, of course, this article wants to make it a little bit clickbait. They call it a difficult period. It's not going to be difficult. It's just not going to be highly profitable like it has been for the last year or so. And this is just the market correcting after all the craziness that happened COVID and after COVID. Now, if you're a holder of stocks like I am personally, this is one of those times where you watch who does a good job managing your capital and who doesn't. I don't want to name names, Chevron, Exxon. <laughs> They've done an incredible job showing a lot of capital discipline. And as a long-term investor in these stocks, that's what I want them to do. I'm not worried about the day-to-day -day or the week-to-week -week or really even the year-to-year -year swings in the value. I'm worried about can they have steady, sustained growth? Can they continue to pay dividends? Which they will. I spoke earlier about Shell and BP. They're in a little bit different situation. They've seen the writing on the wall. They're trying to course correct and pour more money back into their hydrocarbon business. However, they kind of miss the fantastic times, right? So, and they don't have the boatloads of cash that both Chevron and Exxon have because both Chevron and Exxon called it right. And unfortunately, Shell and BP called it wrong. 
The other thing that's going on is you had a lot of ESG investment dollars pulled out of the oil and gas industry. We've talked about that for a couple of years. Then those same companies and individuals saw the returns that they lost and they go, shoot, I don't care now about ESG. And so that money, that's when it came back in the industry. Well, that's a cycle. That's a pendulum swing, right? From no investment because of ESG to I don't care about ESG to a whole bunch of investment. That pendulum's going to swing back and there's going to be a middle ground. So you can see outside investors maybe not as being as hot and heavy to invest in the oil and gas industry as they were just a few, six months ago. But then you have the fact that most unconventionals have a decline rate, that it takes years to get offshore operations up and running from spudding the well to actually yep. going production and even maybe a decade if it's a deep water well. So all that's coming together. And like I said, this article says that we're heading to difficult times. We're not. We're heading to what I would call normal times, which actually, Paige, it's kind of nice. I'd sort of like to get back where everything is just Well, it's just like, like I always say, be. I'm tired of being part of historic events. Yes. Yeah. Can we get back to where it's just like no big deal? So we're headed that way. All right. Cool. 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 All right. Tesla launches construction of lithium refinery in Texas. In where? Texas. (laughs) (laughs) I love my state, if you can't tell. So, yep. Tesla launches construction of lithium refinery in Texas. They're doing a couple things that are a little bit different. One of the things about refining lithium is that your... Once you have your raw materials, when you actually refine it, the refinery process produces some really nasty stuff for the environment and for people. Literally amazingly toxic leftovers from the refining process. Tessa has figured out a way to refine lithium that is less polluting, and it does not produce sodium sulfate as a byproduct, which is the really nasty stuff that conventional lithium refining produces. And then it uses a mixture of sand and calcium carbonate, which is weird. I need organic chemists to actually help me understand how they lowered the energy cost of this reaction by using sand, but somehow sand's involved with this. And this allows them to make a much less polluting waste stream. And in the future, they will take a whole bunch of different feedstocks once they get this process up and running. Now, something that's not in this article, which I find incredibly coincidental, is when we drill a well, we have something called produced water, right? That produced water is salty, has a lot of heavy metals in it. It's like slightly radioactive. Let me be very clear, audience. That water is naturally like that. That's not because we're drilling an oil well. You drill any type of well in the right formation and you get the same produced water that's radioactive, very salty, a bunch of heavy metals. And including all those heavy metals, guess what? What? Is lithium. So if there's a small percentage of lithium in produced water from drilling an oil well, once again, remember, it's not because it's an oil well, just because it's a well. And Tesla owns operations in Texas already to provide natural gas for its SpaceX program as fuel. And they have a new way to ultra-refine lithium from almost any waste stream. Mark my words. They're going to start pulling lithium out of produced water. They're going to be the first company to do it, which is then going to make produced water valuable. And instead of having to pay to dispose it, people will buy it. Now, like it's I said, such a this, pain in the ass to get that permit, too. Yeah, like I said, this is not in the article, but put different parts and pieces together. And I've said this for a long time. You know, I think Elon Musk's ultimate goal is the commercialization of space. That has nothing to do with electric cars or solar roof panels or anything else. And this is him generating another revenue stream so that he can commercialize space. You know, hats off. I love that they built this here in Texas. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're building it here in Texas where they also own oil and gas drilling operations. Also, don't think it's a coincidence that they're able to take different streams of the raw lithium components, even that very dilute components and figure out a way to actually make the lithium refining process work. You watch, they're going to start pulling lithium out of produced water. 
That Which is good really for cool. everybody. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, Occidental Petroleum begins buying back Buffett stock. I believe Warren Buffett is one of the most ethical people out there, so I don't believe this is happening. This sort of feels like a little like insider trading stuff, right? Mm. Please nobody take me to court over this. But basically, you know the story, Occidental Petroleum had Warren Buffett's backing when it went to buy Anadarko. Buffett got preferred stock, which is basically the high-value stuff. He dumped a bunch of money with Occidental, I think over $10 billion, to take over Anadarko in a proxy fight with Chevron, right? If you remember, Chevron mm-hmm. made the first bid. And then in return, they got preferred stock. Now, that preferred stock carries about an 8% dividend. So Oxy bought Anadarko for $55 billion, that's with a B, making it one of the biggest M&A deals in our industry's history. And it outbid Chevron, which nobody outbid Chevron, but in this case with Buckets backing, they did. Now, where it gets a little squirrely here is this preferred stock was issued with redemption notification, which means it allowed to redeem the stock at $474 million worth of stock, but at a price of 110% of its value. So basically, you're selling this stock for more than its value, or you're buying the stock more than its value to the company that loans you the money to buy Anadarko. I am not a legal expert in any of this sort of stuff. And like I said, I believe Warren Buffett is super ethical. So I know this is all on the up and up. But no matter what you think, this shows me that Buffett has no desire to run Occidental or own it. That basically he saw this as a way to make money, which making 110% on your preferred stock is actually <laughs> really good. And this also gets Occidental with the heavy cash they have right now, the ability to buy basically buy out the money that Buffett put in so they have more control over their own shares. So from a shareholder point of view, which I am, it's a good move because it keeps shareholder value up. It's going to keep Berkshire Hathaway stake in Occidental low, and, and that actually will get lower as they buy back this preferred stock, which is going to allow Occidental to have more control over their operations because they don't have to answer to Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire Hathaway made an amazing return on their investment, amazing return on their investment. They know what they're doing. You know, Warren Buffett is like magic. He does things that make no financial sense to me. And then three years later, it's like, how did he know that? Plus, he has to be, what, 100 years old by now? And he's still doing business that way? Yeah, he's something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Big fan of his. All right. So the next article is Renewable Energy Needs to Learn Safety Lessons from Oil and Gas. You hear that, Renewable Guys? (laughs) I want to see all your trucks. I want to see all your company vehicles backed into the parking places, right? I want to see your hands on the stair rails. I want to make sure you have steel toes on. You have eyes and ears. I don't know how many renewable projects I've went on where they don't back in their parking spot. They don't have steel toes. They don't have eyes and ears. And if you go in their offices, they don't hold on to the handrails. So I agree with this. If you go kind of deep in this article, it's basically – one of the things I do disagree in here is they basically reference into BP Energy Outlook of 2022, and BP thinks that by 2050, only 20% of the world's energy sources will come from hydrocarbons. The rest will become of renewables. I think there's no way it's going to happen. But the whole idea behind this is renewable business is growing, which it is, and it's growing dramatically, especially with our taxpayer funds. And the renewable sector needs to put less emphasis on producing electricity and focus more on safety. And I do agree they have a lot to learn for the oil and gas industry. I know a lot of people on both sides think that the oil and gas industry and renewables are competitors. They're not. It's all just freaking energy. And if we can help the renewable people learn how to be safer, have less long time incidents and Lord forbid, keep you know people from dying, happy to do it. We've done this for a long time and we've improved the safety in this industry dramatically. You know, you've heard me say this before. The last statistics I have are from 
2019. And in 2019 in the U.S., it's safer to work in the oil and gas industry than it is to be a realtor, right? That's how far we move the needle. And we need to do the same with renewables. So renewable companies, if you need help with safety, raise your hand. And as an industry, I promise you, we'll come help you. Safer to be a realtor, huh? Well, I guess Isn't that I, crazy? Yeah. Well, no, that actually makes sense. I watch a lot of murder shows. So, <laughs> I mean, when you said that, I went straight to criminal minds. So, but anyway. Well, I mean, we're not yeah. in the real estate industry, so we're fine. Which is really funny. I had to explain to my daughter the other day why I always park backwards. I was like, so I can leave fast yeah. in case something happens. She's like, oh, I knew it was an oil and gas thing, but I just didn't know why. And I was like, well, that's why. It's two things. So that's the main well, one. Well, yeah, that's the, the other one yeah. is it makes sure you inspect your surroundings because it's right. much more complicated to back in. Yes. But you and I say this to each other all the time. We'll go to somewhere anywhere in the world and we look at the parking lot. We can tell how many people work in the oil and gas industry. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so UK Supreme Court rules in favor of Shell and Nigeria oil spill dispute. It's not a dispute. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. Any oil spill is serious. I really, really don't mean to laugh. So basically, a whole bunch of individual companies and people band it together in Nigeria. And the funny thing is half of them don't even live in Nigeria. They just have business in Nigeria. They sued Shell for a leak of 40,000 barrels of crude that took place in 2022 But there's a statute of limitations, and that statute of limitations is six years for this type of spill, and they waited 11. So you can't sue. There's a reason that these laws are in place. That's to protect everybody. If you allow any lawsuit that not to have no statute limitations, that means I could go back and sue the French government for my ancestors being kicked out in the 1600s for being Catholic, right? You heard me, France? I'm coming after you, right? (laughs) You can't run civilizations that way, much less companies, much less make sure your employees are well-protected and your shareholder value is good. And so this was literally thrown out of court. Now, here's where it gets crazy. 27,000 individuals and 457 coastal official communities were part of this lawsuit. You want to guess how many of them actually live in that area? What percentage? No. 30%. Really? 70%. Of these people don't even live in the area, but they're suing outside of the statute of limitations for a spill, and they're saying that that spill has affected their livelihood. They don't live there. That makes no sense. That should be just completely thrown out. And that's what the court said. This is a nuisance suit. Good. Good for the court. It's just because it shall get out of here. And by the way, if you come back, we're going to find you. So this is what needed to have happened. And once again, when the spill happened, Shell spent billions of dollars cleaning everything up. They have third parties. They still have third parties there checking to make sure that the environment is clean. They actually clean up better than it was before. So these type of nuisance suits are just, not just in the oil and gas industry, but you see this a lot with big companies. You have people, I just saw the other day, somebody once again won a lawsuit at McDonald's because the coffee was too hot. And it's like, That's how many thing? times are people going to sue McDonald's because the coffee is too hot? Well, Which, they by should the way, be suing because the ice cream machine doesn't work. That's, that's what another should, whole that's, mystery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know what we're talking about, Google it. All right, let's get off this. Let's go to the next one. All right. Well, yeah, let's talk about Russia because that's we don't do that every week. <laughs> Russia's tax hike on the oil and gas industry will be destructive to a key piece of its economy. I don't think so. So basically what happened with the sanctions and with you know the world not buying Western or at least the Western world, Russia lost a lot of revenue. I guess so. Yeah, and so what they're doing is they're changing the way they tax their production, and that tax is going to make up about $8 billion extra dollars, which is right around the amount of money they lost because of Western sanctions. And so nearly half of Russia's operating budget, think of the money it runs the government, comes from oil and gas, which 
dropped almost by 50% in the last year because of the sanctions. And so what Russia did is just really changed the way they're taxing things. And the countries that are buying Russian oil don't care. It's India and China. And so I don't think this is going to devastate a piece of Russia's economy. I think it will help put more money in the Kremlin's bank, which bothers me a little bit, not because I want them to have less money, but right now they don't have enough money to really fund their war machine with Ukraine. And Ukraine has held out so long that they're pretty close to bankrupt in Russia. And so what bothers me about this is now Russia is going to have money and not really go into bankruptcy. Now, the flip side of that is I saw literally just this morning that certain NATO allies are going to actually send F-16s to Ukraine, which the U.S. has said they will not do. Even though the F-16 was built by the U.S., it's other countries that bought them that are sent in there. I sort of think that's the right thing to do. Once the Ukraine pilots are trained, which is going to take a year, it's not going to happen over a weekend, and they have U.S.-manufactured F-16s, they will now have air superiority, and Russia doesn't stand a chance. So it's kind of good timing because Russia, I thought, was going to lose this war because they were going to go bankrupt. This change in taxation is going to keep them from going bankrupt. But I think now with some F-16s and some good training, they'll have air superiority. Either way, I think this war is just about over. Good. I'm so sick of hearing about it and talking about it and paying for it. And paying for it. I felt, I still do feel for the people of Ukraine. Oh, of course. Well, I feel I feel for both sides. They're people because you know they yeah, have nothing the to do with it. Too. I do too, right? right? Yeah. The longer this goes on, though, the more corruption I see on the Ukraine side. Yeah, and that bothers me. I have no problem giving money to keep people alive, keep yeah. them fed. Right, right. I don't want a piece of that money to be siphoned off and go to some politician's pocketbook, and that's well, what's happening. That existed prior to the war. I know. So. Once again, my heart does go out to the Russian people, Ukraine people. I actually interviewed for the balance point. Some very young people from the Ukraine. Right, and yeah. it was the first thing they fussed at me is calling it a conflict. And so it really, you know, I got to listen to it here in my own eyes. I teared up during that interview. So it's time for the war to be over. And I think it will be. This taxation is not going to ruin the Russian economy. It's only just put more money back in their pockets. All righty. So Sunak says UK needs fossil fuels. Did I say that right? Sunak? Sunak, I believe that's right. Sunak. Yeah. So that's the prime minister of the UK. Has some common sense, right? Yeah. Says we need fossil fuel in the next few decades. He needs to be talking to the- The, the church. The church. <laughs> the church in England. Yeah. Hey. hey, buddy. Yeah, maybe we can get those two people together. To you, would think, you would think that would already be something in existence, but- Yeah. So one of the things that's going on, they don't mention this right now, is Equinor has a new project in the North Sea that they're looking at whether they make an investment or not in. It's a hydrocarbon project. And, you know, Equinor is pretty darn good at getting hydrocarbons out of the North Sea because they're legacy stat oil. They're trying to figure out, does it make fiscal sense to invest this project based on the politics that's going on in the UK? The thing that makes me happy about this is I hope this is a positive sign to Equinor to go, you know what, let's go ahead and invest in this 100-year project to get more hydrocarbons out of the North Sea. Because the world needs the hydrocarbons and Europe needs the hydrocarbons. But that project, if they kick it off, the earliest will get going to be 2026. And they're looking at doing over 70,000 barrels of oil and 21 million cubic feet of gas, which would be one of the largest fields in the UK. Now, the cool thing is that would help eliminate any future chokehold Russia tries to put on Russia for natural gas. So that project needs to go through. What I'm hoping is Equinor, their financial analysts, look at Prime Minister Sunak and go, you know what? He's behind the oil and gas industry. Most of the parliament's behind it. It's worth the geopolitical risk. I'm really, fingers crossed, this what happens. Not so much worried about this article about, you know, Sunak says UK needs fossil fuels. More worried about 
the investment that we need to produce hydrocarbons in the future and the way that geopolitics is interfering, that, especially in the UK. So this is actually very, very good news. Okay, here's some dumb news. New York poised to pass first statewide law banning natural gas in new buildings. Yeah, glad I don't live in New York. Or, yeah. Let me tell you what this is going to do. It's going to make everything more expensive. Like it's not expensive already? Right. And if you're very young, like seven, and I don't know why you're listening to this show if you're seven, but yeah. thank you for listening. You may not know this, but as the U.S. matured through its industrial revolution, when we first started having electricity provided to cities, New York was one of the first ones to have commercial electricity. That makes to, sense. Right? Yeah. And up until just recently, the grid was solid. In fact, it was so solid that when they would have a blackout, it was a major deal, right? There's movies made about blackouts that lasted a day or two in New York. Yeah. Right? Because it was so uncommon. People weren't prepared for it. Mm-hmm. New York already has is having blackouts regularly, rolling blackouts, brownouts. Oh, that's been going on for quite a while, yeah. especially because so of the weather. And so stuff. if you're younger, you think that's normal. It's not normal. We used to have the most stable electrical infrastructure in the world, and we're destabilizing it by forcing – renewables at a pace faster than they can be built and integrated into the grid. And there, I can get to the whole thing about baseload nearness. I don't want to do that. Let's go back to this natural gas ban. So you want to guess what state is the sixth largest consumer of natural gas in the U.S.? The sixth? The sixth largest consumer. It's not Texas. Woohoo. New York. Okay. Well, th- so they're one of the top <laughs> consumers of natural gas, and they're going to wave this magic political wand and make all this. Who are go- the top five? Do you know off the top of your head? No. <laughs> Can we stick on what I see? Do see what happens when you ask me questions and I don't know the answer to? I just throw them right back at you. It's going to be a statewide band. They're committing to get 70% of their electricity from renewables, which is, you know, hats off to them. This is only going to divert. What's the opposite of inclusion? This is only going to have a bigger dividing line between the wealthy and the poor people in New York. Because only yep. the wealthy will be able to afford power. It's going to hurt education. It's going to hurt hospitals. It's going to hurt things like restaurants and food chains, right? And so, well, they're already hurting because of all the crime. Yeah. So, well, I mean, so add this on top of that, right? And so, this makes zero zero sense, right? And then I suspect that this will probably have some legal challenges as well, because there's been a couple of places in the U.S. that have tried the same thing, and the federal government steps in and says you're creating a monopoly for fuel supplies, which breaks some type of federal law. Mm-hmm. You know, consumers need to have the ability to have natural gas or electricity or propane mm-hmm. so they can choose. But New York, this is y'all have done some stupid stuff. This is probably well, the at least Cuomo is not there anymore. Yeah, but anyway, so I know what's gonna happen. I mean, I mean, and I feel bad for people that live there, especially for the poor people that live there. But it's their state, they can do what they want. Maybe them in California can like just freeze to death together. That's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, you're not wrong. All right, you're right. I really shouldn't have said that. Maybe them in California, I don't know. <laughs> can they just okay? Just together? leave it alone. Just leave it alone. All right. Anyway, let's hit up the last one. Canada Suncor says worker injured in bear attack at oil sands plant. Well, I guess that is a thing, isn't it? SeaWorld, you think it's rough when you go to work and you have to worry about a paper cut or somebody runs out of staples? It's a little bit different in the oil and gas industry. This site produces about 3,500 barrels a day of crude. It's in a very remote region of northern Alberta. Bear attacks, bear sightings in that part of the Canada are very, very common. They actually, Suncor actually has a professional wildlife contractor on site that monitors all this. They have training for their people. They provide deterrents such as bear spray 
along with the training. So the workers are trained not to interface with any large carnivores like bears. But this worker, unfortunately, was attacked. He's been released from the hospital. He's totally fine. Everything uh, intact? Everything intact, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then the Alberta Wildlife Fisheries came in to site to search for the bear. Unfortunately, before the Alberta Wildlife Fisheries could get there, six Texas roughnecks drove up there. The bear is now a rug. Ha, 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 ha. That last part's not true, people. <laughs> I just had to throw it in there because it just made a good end of the story. Speaking of ending the story, come advertise with us. We got all kinds of options. We're killing it with our back catalog stuff. We have two companies so far that have signed up to show their ads in our back catalog. It's literally $50 per thousand impressions, and they're making money hand over fist. So if you'd like a cheap way to work with us, go check it out. Just go to OGGN.com and check out the page that says pricing. Then we still have our conference coming up in September. It is now just the Oil and Gas Global Network Conference. We're going to focus on technology, safety, and culture. So if you have a company that wants some exposure any of that, check out the conference. The link will be in the show note. If you're an exhibitor, you actually get to be a speaker as well. What we're trying to do is, you know, when you go to a conference page and you come out of session and you run across somebody you haven't seen in a year in the hallway and you have this great conversation for 30 seconds. Yeah. We're trying to make the whole conference that. Oh, okay. So no paid speakers. Our exhibitors will be the speakers. Everything's be built around network and learning. We're not going to allow people to sell anything. We're actually going to train the exhibitors not to sell, which is weird, but just to educate. So go check that out. Weekly rig count. All right. It's not looking too fantastic, but it is what it is. United States is at 720. We're down 11. Canada is at 85, down 9. Internationally, we're at 947, up 17. Yeah, that just coincides with my belief that we're headed toward a more equalization of supply and demand. So I think we're going to continue to see the rate count slide backwards. Like I said at the beginning of the show, if you want to learn about the stuff we're doing, including our mixer in Calgary, just go to the LinkedIn page, follow the LinkedIn page, all you have to do. The other thing is, while you're out there, if you want to live a question for First Friday Q&A, which is coming up really soon, you either go to OGGN.com or OilandGasThisWeek.com. Both have a place to leave a question. If we read your question, we will give you a big shout out. And then if you want a list of all the oil and gas events, plus cool stuff like free passes to OTC, sign up for my monthly oil and gas events newsletter. That is also in the show notes. Then if you want myself and any of our experts to come speak at your event, come to your conference, bring up a live podcast, happy to share details with you. Well, Tucker's snoring. Yep. You and I don't feel good. Yep. Let's get out of here. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.